Welcome to 90 Beats, uh, Season 1, Episode 3. This episode is where Clark DJ goes global, not really global, where where I, I'm going to talk about how I basically started to kick off the idea of DJing and uh, what those uh, early gigs were like and how I developed, um, again, probably too much to call it a craft. Uh, there's one kind of quite important information I want to give at this point is that I really don't like referring to myself as a DJ and, and the Clark DJ thing, I kind of dropped a bit more. And, and you'll notice my Instagram handle now is Brit MND Selector. And having read some books about, you know, the history of hip hop and history of DJing and stuff, I, I really um, emphasized with the, and really kind of felt felt connection with the term selector. So the person that really is in charge of really choosing the tracks the crowd are going to love um, is much more my thing rather than kind of mixes and, you know, any kind of production quality, um, you know, and, 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 you know, so my thing really is about choosing the tracks, uh, and I, and I would really often clash them together or just fade out, fade up, um, is my style. So, um, you know, that's, but I just wanted to get out of the way at this early stage. So, uh, thank you for uh, listening to this episode and I hope you like it. Um, and I'm going to take you through the journey, uh, of Clark DJ and the different gigs that I ran and, and how I, uh, kind of got into this game. Okay, uh, let's let's do it. Quick note, due to complications between being in Spain and the UK, uh, I have a Spotify playlist that provides the music that accompanies this episode. Uh, so you can go to tinyurl.com forward slash Beats S1 E3 for series one, episode three. Nigel Beats S1E3. That will give you the Spotify playlist that gives you the tracks mentioned in this episode. You can enjoy it and you can get in touch with me at anchor.fm forward slash Nigel Beats to uh, let me know what you think. Okay, let's go on. The youth of the world won't understand CDs, let alone Discman's. But I'm pretty sure that my first DJing kind of gig thing, I had a CD Discman on the table, um, and it was part of our of our kit and our setup and the way we ran things. <laughs> so um, I will get this validated with Rob, who was my DJ buddy. But I'm pretty sure we had a Discman. So uh, I want to talk a bit about the um, the context for when I first started. So in previous episodes, I mentioned the cooker. Uh, at York University. So I was at um, a part of uni- York University called Gurik. It's now been renamed. It's now part of James, which is uh, an, ab- an abomination. But anyway, let's stick to where we were. Um, so we were, we were part of the university. There's a collegial system. It's about eight colleges, I think, which were basically around the, the halls of residence. But um, as well as the halls of residence, you generally had a bar and most had uh, a dining room, dining hall, with that and like a cafeteria doing meals and stuff so so we had this hall uh, and it was as bad and as bland and as blank and as empty and as uncharacteristic and characteristic uncharacterful a hall as you can imagine so it was a dining hall absolutely just that's all it was um 
And this was the context we're working with. So we had a committee that ran um, events and social staff and looked after the students in our college. And we had the main students union as well, which which had the kind of main like equipment for gigs and things. And, and they organised central stuff. But the weird thing about York University was we didn't have a central students union venue, which they sort of do now because they've sort of built some new stuff. But back then we just had these colleges and each college basically had a bit of a competition, especially on a on certain nights of the week or weekend to do these events. Um, and you had to compete for the equipment. So you had to get in early and book, you know, I want to do Friday night. So I want this rig from, from the, uh, the kit room. Um, but yeah, the main thing we had to work with was this dining hall. And the size of the dining hall was, I think from memory, you were probably allowed about 100 people, 150 people in it. Um, that was probably it. And that's based on you know, fire regulations and size and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the real quirk of what we had to deal with, which other places didn't, was that our bar was separate. It was like outdoors, crossed like a little walkway and in a separate little building thing. So it was an absolute killer for gigs and events because obviously the main thing is where is the bar? And our bar was a separate building. And it wasn't far away, but from where you entered and left the room for the main hall, it was like 50 yards, maybe, something like that, you know, like, I don't know what that is. 50 yards is, what, 40 metres or something? Or was it the way around? I don't know. But it was, you know, a little walk away, um, though sort of connected physically, but, you know, it was like, it was away from the door we had to get in. So it was a real quirk. But but what it meant was, so what we're working with was this empty, empty dining hall, which was just crap as a dining hall, you know, nothing there to work with. So you had no lights, you just had a wooden floor, uh, a wall of blank windows, uh, a couple of other walls you could deal with. The ceiling was like the usual ceiling tile stuff. Um, so you had that to work with and you had this separate bar. And the separate bar meant this quirk is that you had most of the people weren't in the room, right, for most of the night because they're all in the bar. This is university. And, you know, if you had some big name act, maybe people would come in. But, you know, in the reality, you pretty much had an empty room when you started at like eight, nine. Um, but one of the fantastic things that worked really, really well is the last bit of context, really, is um, that at 11 o'clock, they had to shut the bar and kick everybody out. Because after 11 o'clock, you're only allowed to use the bar if you had paid for a ticket and you had a wristband. So at 11 o'clock, what happened was everybody was kicked out of the bar, which meant they all came into the hall. And you had this moment when you suddenly had all 100 people that had been drinking for a couple of hours and in quite a good mood and are ready to party. And they all come into the room at once. And you, you've got the moment there to kind of keep them there, you know. And most of the time, you could, if you could do it well, you could do it really, really well. And most people would stay there, you know, and send off a couple of people to the bar to restock the drinks, you know. But it was it, it ended up being quite a good strength of the of the venue, but only if you could maintain their interest, you know. So if you played some dud tracks, or if you had a band on at that stage which were a bit rubbish at that particular point, it killed your night. It absolutely killed your night. So that was the context. Uh, the hall, which was blank, uh, the quirk of the bar, and the, this eleven o'clock thing, where you had to absolutely plan that moment for when people came in, um, and you know, back this is this is obviously a certain point in time we're talking about year 1999 98 99 2000 where we had some turntables and 1210s techniques 1210s and then we brought some extra bits so we brought like a discman or two um to have cds available to us as well i think i used a mini disc player as well i think i, I remember plugging my mini disc player for some tracks as well 
that was a context. Okay, so there are two aspects that I want to talk through. One is the actual kind of DJing music side of things, which actually is the shorter part of the discussion, I think. So I'm going to do that first. And the second part is about how to run a night. Um, and I'm going to do a separate episode of the podcast later about, you know, how to, how, you know, what the aspects are of running a good, good event. But first of all, the music. So it's quite short because in the early days, um, the, the general principle um, was I had a buddy and I, I still quite like having a buddy now because it just relieves the pressure a little bit if you have a second person involved. Um, because you can talk to them about the choice of tracks, about the way it's going and the way the crowd reacting and stuff. And obviously they will think of tracks that might fit well that you know you, you might not have thought of. So um, in the early days, I had Rob. So hi, Rob. Shout out to you. Um, so again, part of the context I didn't mention before was that Rob and his uh, partner and now wife of many years and several kids um, at the time were, were part of the committee that were running events when I was a first year in this college. And they had already started to bring over um, some DJs and, and acts from um, from Leeds. And I'm going to talk about that in a separate episode because we need a specific deep dive on on the cooker and um, everything to do with them and the new master sounds and everything. So we'll look out for that. There'll be a separate episode. But in terms of this, this you know, part of the context is that they had already been running some nights in our college and I'd be trying to make them go well. And they were going really well. They were so cool. And that's kind of why I wanted to get involved and get on it. So Rob became my buddy. And we did, um, you know, a DJ set together, basically. So I've, I've, I've asked Rob and he can't quite remember either. The problem with this kind of podcast is we're talking about stuff that happened 20 years ago. And there was quite a lot of grosh uh, consumed back then. So... Uh, it's a bit tricky to remember the details. So what we think happened is that we had a night where we had the the DJ book from Leeds that was like a proper paid DJ guy with a proper box of good vinyl and stuff. And it was kind of like an ongoing series of nights of soul and funk and stuff. And that we said, well, okay, we'll do the early set. So Rob and I probably would have started at about eight o'clock when, when we'd start the night. And we'd play till probably 10.45 when there was this moment I mentioned in the previous bit about... Uh, people coming in from the bar at 11. So I think we would have played till 10.45 and then the proper DJ bloke, who we think is called Ez, as in Eric, um, from Dig Promotions at the time, which was part of the cooker and the atrium and the wardrobe and this kind of stuff in Leeds, related to the new Master Sounds. Excellent guy, really nice guy, excellent music choice, stuff like that. So and again, that was part of it, was that we would play this early set as like a support act and then he would come on at 10.45 and he would play this like storming, brilliant funk set um, through till whenever we finished. Probably one, I guess. Um, with, again, 11 o'clock being the key hour when people come in from the bar and you, you try and capture them and keep them keep them dancing. So Rob and I had this like early set. So Rob basically brought the funk and I brought the beats. That's the way I'd categorise it. And I remember, I just remember specifically this CD Disman being there because some of the CDs we had, you know, like Rob had um uh what's it called um mr big stuff on a cd i remember that he was like oh let's play this like and i was like oh that is an excellent track i think i've heard it before but i didn't really know it and that's when i grew to know mr big stuff whereas i would have more like the grand central records and the kind of breakbeat fat boy slim skint kind of beat stuff so i think that's basically how we split it a little bit um and we would have played for a couple of hours taking turns probably like i don't know couple of tracks each or 30 minutes each taking turns 
and that that was it. So uh, you know, and, and it was nothing more than that. You know, at first that was the early days. Really, I think later we'll get on to when I would run my own ninth, but this was in the context of we had a kind of established night running. We had established DJs and established kind of brand of the cooker that that was over from Leeds. And we would like play the early music and play the support act and kind of learn our craft that way. That's that's the way I'd kind of categorise it. And the second part then was about running an event. So I gave the context a bit about this hall. And the main thing about this is that it is a very, very, very bland dining hall. And so it, it it's good in a way because it's a blank canvas, but it is quite a limited canvas. You know, there's not a lot you can do with it. And what we basically did, um, and I don't remember whether I did this or Rob did this, or you know, I I, I think I, I I think I was quite instrumental in in it because I remember there being a slight risk about fire safety and and crowd limits and stuff. Was you had this quite massive dining hall, and we basically separated it in half, or maybe even less, maybe like about a third of the size of it by by putting these um like tripods up that were normally used for lighting rigs and draping a big white um big white fabric like blanket thing on it and basically cut the room in half at least in half i think more than half i you know my my recollection is quite specifically make it as small as possible because you had this huge empty dining room space shitty atmosphere even when you filled it at 11 o'clock but actually if you cut it in half and you had this big white canvas that you could do something with, it was quite a cool small space. When everybody came in at 11, suddenly it felt quite full, quite like basement-y. Again, I mentioned previous um, episode that one of the things going on in the, in the time was that we would go to this club in York, I think on a Thursday, and the basement of this club had a soul night on. So it felt a bit like that. You know, it was certainly reminiscent of that. So... We cut the room in half and we had this big white sheet basically separating the room. And that meant you could do some cool stuff. So we, we basically relied on some projections and projectors to project stuff onto this thing. And one of the techies that we had, this guy, Sean, that was an absolute dude. And I lost touch with him since uni. And I, I feel bad for that. He was he was a cool dude. He really was. And he was so, like, patient with us and put up with everything we asked him and would work until 5 a.m. You know, he was this amazing guy. He just so believed in these kind of events and stuff. Um, so we, he would basically help us to create slides that he would project because this was early days of digital projections. So he would create, um, I mean, it's not an analog slide, I guess like um, I don't know how to describe it, like a like an old style film slide, celluloid. I guess that's a word for it, probably celluloid slide that would project the cooker logo or a certain slogan or a graphic or whatever and we project that he had he, he bought himself i think he bought with his own money quite a cool projector that would project that and it would spin and twist and change colors and stuff um and i remember that one night one of the things i'm most proudest of and that actually leads to quite a funny story is that we we got these giant balloons i think i bought them from some kind of party shop but basically giant balloons that would blow up to be um, like a meter wide or something. I hung them from the ceiling, and then we got projectors like normal data projectors, which back in two thousand were these big chunky fat things with fans, you know, the big ones. And we'd set them up, and we had them plugged into with a scart lead. Remember scart leads before HDMI? Scart lead to a video player. Do you remember videos, VHS, 
and we and we played like Pulp Fiction um, and Reservoir Dogs because it was still cool at the time. Uh, those. So we played these Quentin Tarantino things, but we projected them on these balloons. So you had these great like visual of these like how would you say like contoured version of of the, like the scenes above, and we put them above the DJ booth. So you had the DJ on the decks, which was this guy Ez from Leeds, Eric, and um, above him was these balloons, which were quite big, like massive balloons, and on them were projected scenes like from Reservoir Dogs and stuff. It was so cool, but. It's quite a significant flaw is that we had this fairly shitty ceilings to deal with and the balloons fell off and like landed on the decks on the needle. <laughs> Killed the music at one point. He was playing, I don't know, some, some funk record. I don't know what it was. And this like massive balloon fell off, landed on the needle, bounced it off, and, you know, that needle noise and um, killed the mood for a few seconds. It's quite funny until he like recovered. Quite funny. Um but yeah, so the point of the story was, uh, in, in running an event, a big part is the vibe you're creating with the room and the space you have. And we had to work with this dining room. And it's one of my like life-proud moments is that we managed to create something out of such a shitty you know, space. There was so little to work with. And it was great that we were able to create such a great vibe. And, and people, people really did react to it. You know, we did, did pretty well. So two other things I want to talk about in this episode about the early DJ days was I had a, I don't know if I'd call it a residency, but I would like to call it a residency. I think I have all my recent materials, a residency at a bar at York University called JJ's. It was quite a small bar. I had a class of about 50 people um, and there was the sort of drum and bass group um, at university already that had DJs that played there on a certain night. And I basically got in on the action and said, yeah, I'd like to do a set. And they, they let me do it, and it was quite cool. And um, I did a few nights, and I've got some flyers from back in those days and uh, how I, like, experimented with a bit of <coughs> graphics and advertising and branding, if you like. So one of them was called a Groove Education, which I quite like. One of them was called um, That Funky Music, which was related to <coughs> Play That Funky Music and the That Funky Music, which I think was Utah Saints. Um... But yeah, so we had this bar and I did, I mean, I've got, I think I, I did at least three, but I think more nights than that there. Um, and it was a bar, so it wasn't, it didn't have the dance floor of the previous place with the dining room. Um, but it was cool. It was quite relaxed, but it, you know, it just meant you could have your friends there. You could have a load of random people there. You could have people that you knew were into the kind of funk and hip hop stuff that we'd done at the cooker. Um, uh, but we did it on more of a weeknight, maybe um it was like free or maybe a couple of quid to get in and it was good good times it was good times one night i did there was grand central record special so i'm going to do a different episode of the podcast about grand central records um as well and mark and ray and christian but one night i chose to do it as a bit of a nice gimmick and i and i messaged probably emailed <laughs> grand central records and ray and christian in Manchester and said, I'm going to do this night because I love your music. Can you send me some free stuff? And they sent me some like record sleeves and like logos and posters and stuff. Um, and I put that up and uh, we had this night, which is basically mostly playing the music of Grand Central Records and Christian, Ray and Christian, which was a big part of my set anyway, but I just made it more of a focus. But I asked Sean, the guy previously mentioned, Techie, 
to help me do some live visuals where we would try and project or somehow represent in a visual the name of the artist that was currently playing on the track or whatever. And it was it was quite hard work. I think if you did it now, it would be a lot easier. Um, but back in 2000 was pretty tricky. Um, but there was, there was good times. And the second thing to mention is that then the, the main culmination of this kind of period of DJing was at an event at one of the other colleges um, called Derwent. And we had a night called Defunct, as in Derwent Funked. And um, it was the biggest night I'd done at this, at this point and this sort of stage, really. So I think it was about 200 people at this other bar. We did have a band on. So we were DJing kind of before and after this band. I, I wanted a bit of another person with me. So there was this other guy that I didn't know that well. He was sort of friend of a friend. He was more into sort of drum and bass and more into sort of some soul stuff like Northern Soul, maybe. I didn't know him that well. I didn't really know his music that well. It was a bit weird. But we, we took, took turns doing a bit of a pre-set and then a set after the band. And um, But it was, yeah, it was the biggest crowd of people had done... And we had this very cool gimmick that we had a webcam set up pointing at the decks and then projecting that on like on the wall of the side of this um, this room. It was different to the previous dining room thing. It was still a dining room, but it was a better venue with a stage set up and we were at the side of the dance floor and stuff. So we had the crowd in front of us and the stage to the right of us. And there was this wall in front of us that you could project. And we had the, uh, again, same techie probably, Sean, um, helping us with this projection at times, not all the time, but this projection on the wall of, of like the needle and the decks. And if you were doing any kind of scratching type movement of the record, it looks so cool. I think he had it black and white. I don't know, but it, it just looked amazing. It was so cool. Again, this visual thing of how you run nights, what you give the audience that are there, the crowd that are there, give them some visual stuff to appreciate and watch as they kind of get their groove on, you know? Um, yeah, so that, that was that was like, you know, such a cool night, such a cool night, really good memory. I think it was billed as a bit of a cheesy funk night with like images of like a you know Afro girl thing. So, that, you know, it wasn't like cutting edge kind of funk hip hop night, but it was pretty good. It was pretty, I was pretty pleased with it with the night. And I've still got like a t shirt and like we had these like access wall areas, dumb passes that we didn't really need, but we had anyway. And, um, I think it, it, it really went off. The crowd really enjoyed it. It was a good night. I was getting quite good at running events at York University and um, I was looking to do something quite big and special. That was the idea. Um, and I, I occasionally reconnected with my childhood best friend, Phil. Shout out to Phil. He was working in some type of A&R kind of role connected with bands and, and artists and things and so I got in touch with him and I said Phil I'm looking to do a gig and I'd like to get somebody pretty good um, at top of our budget you know anyone around anyone you kind of got contacts with and he said well funnily enough there's this act that's come up and they want to do some university tours because they want to work out the live show they're just about to hit the scene and release their album and single and, and they're about to sort of make it quite big you know people are talking about him um, and uh, you know it's possible so I said, okay, I'm interested, I'm interested, tell me a bit more, send me some information. And then I figured out what our budget was. And we only had a venue that was like, I don't know, I don't remember now, but like 200 people, say, 150 people. So so if you charge like 10, 15, 20 pound each, that's quite a lot for the students uh, back in those days, at least. And um, and so our budget was pretty limited. And, and when I talked with Phil, it, it transpired that we really couldn't quite afford it. It's a shame, but it was just a bit too far out of a price range. Like, we could manage, I don't know, 12,000, and he needed 20 plus or something. So it wasn't, like, 
massively at our range, but it just wasn't going to work. So, you know, and, and I was like, well, we're take, taking a punt on somebody that hasn't really launched yet anyway. You know, I don't know whether it would really work. So, you know, it, it, it was something we had to let go. Then, like, fast forward to about a week later, and on the front cover of the NME, and suddenly on, like, all the radio coverage and everything you could ever imagine, it was this guy that we'd missed out on. <coughs> And so it's the one that got away, absolutely. And I just like to daydream it would have been so badass to get this guy and, and then work another live show. Because I, I subsequently saw the live show at Leeds Festival a few years later, and it was so, so amazing. It was so good. So, um, yeah, that's the one that got away. Drum roll. And the answer is... Has it come to this? Oh, oh, oh. You listen to the streets. Yes, it was Mike Skinner and the streets that we were on the cusp of getting to play at York University in the early days. So you are now invited to pause this podcast episode, go and find a track by the streets. I recommend Has It Come To This. It's one of my favourites. It's just got a really good energy. Um, and uh, But you can pick your favourite otherwise. But Has It Come To This is on my playlist for this episode. And I in- encourage you to go listen to that and then come back and continue this episode. I would almost always finish my sets, and still do actually, with a particular song. Um, I'd, I'd found it just on the Ray and Christian Mix Mag album. It's the last track on that, and it just kind of stuck a chord with me. And from the first time I played, tried it towards the end of the night, it worked amazingly well. And the good thing about it is that the, the start of it is quite a striking piano, blong, blong, blong which like really hits out across a dance floor if you then turn on the lights and that. It really signals that it's the last song and it's the end of the night. Um, security guys loved it because it, it, it was really clear to everybody that the night was finishing. So security could kind of come in and start clearing out all the drunk people and telling them to move on and stuff. Like stewards could start clearing up and all that. So it was a good signal. But the sneaky thing about it was that after the intro bit is a bit plinky-plonky, it goes into a really nice jazzy funky thing that, that the keen people who are like sticking out to the end can have a good boogie to. And you saw that a lot where, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's the end of the night. And some people will like leg it straight away. Um, some people go and like find the coats and things. But, but as this other bit kind of really builds up, you, you get a few people that just stay dancing and ignoring the security, which is something I would absolutely do a lot as well. So um, it's a great track. It really finishes well. Um, and uh, I'm going to play it for you now. At this point in this podcast, you are invited to pause, go to a music uh, application and look for the Young Holt Unlimited and Soulful Strut. It's the name of the song, Soulful Strut. Enjoy that track and then come back and continue this episode. See you shortly. Radio, radio. I just uh, watched the Beam Rhapsody Queen film again the other day, and it reminded me that in this episode I should include a piece about radio. So I took a brief diversion through my time at York University into York University Radio, URY, which uh, in one of the years, at least, when I was at York, uh, it was broadcast on FM. Um, I don't know if it was national. I wouldn't have thought so. But if it's on FM, it must be, right? But, yeah, for some reason, there was a sort of a, a short-term arrangement where they had FM. So, uh, but anyway, um, 
Rachel, who most listeners now will have heard mention of a few times, Rachel, my good friend, uh, was well into radio and did a fantastic kind of semi-skit comedy chat sort of show called Big Sofa um, at the time. And so I was kind of like intrigued and thought, well, you know, maybe I should give it a go. And I think I should have done it earlier. I should have done it in my first year probably. But one of the problems they had, sorry if anyone ends up listening to this that was well into it but they were quite a weird bunch of people um that were involved in the radio station so when i then did sort of uh, approach and and say i was interested in doing something yeah they were a bit a bit of an odd bunch um they were sort of i don't know if they're all physics students but there was all that physics electronics maths type people <laughs> that were into radio and, and rachel was a delightful exception with her crew and there was a few others as well um somebody i remember had a very wonderful female voice that used to entrance me when i listened to it in a morning show. Anyway, I get diverted. So I approached him and said, okay, I'd like to have a go. So I had a sort of a training session learning how to use the studio. And then I did it. I don't know how for how long, probably a term. I did, you know, more than two episodes, uh, two shows, probably less than 12, I would think. I don't really remember. Maybe Rachel will remember. Um, but yeah, you know, and I was started with the, um, the Rain Christian Jungle Brothers play on a track. I, I loved having that as my kind of opening song. Um, and much like the gigs, really, just play lots of the Rain Christian Grand Central stuff and a few other bits and pieces. And the, the the most amusing story part of it really was that they'd shown me in the training stuff of like how you could receive calls in from listeners. So the the, the concept of receiving a call from a listener was you know, very exciting. And um, I the light flashed one time when I was doing this show. And I thought, oh my God, I've got a caller. I can't believe somebody's listening. And I thought maybe it's Rach, but I don't think so because I think I knew she was busy. So I couldn't believe it. So I sort of managed to remember how to do it and answered the call. And I was like, hi, this is uh, Clock DJ on URY. Uh, you know, how can I help? Kind of thing. <laughs> Not on the air. This was like taking the call first. And it was one of the nerd guys who was like, that song you've just played has got swear words in it. So obviously, like I don't know if they take turns, but someone was listening to my show in case I did something wrong, and I did, and they they rang me and they told me off, <laughs> and I was so good. But you know, it's quite funny. So it was a good like little adventure into radio. Weirdly, I got nominated for an award. I think after I'd stopped doing the show, so I wasn't available or didn't want to do it anymore. I don't remember. But um, after that. Uh, I then, uh, I think I saw something listing my radio show for an award. I was like, what? And it was like for, for best new, best new, you know, DJ or best new music show or something. I don't know. It's quite a good category. And apparently I was nominated for this award. Didn't really know anything about the event or anything. Uh, like, you know, Student Radio National Awards or something. And I didn't win. So it was a fairly non-event. But it was nice to be nominated. And, and I still never found out how or why or maybe they didn't have many options. I don't know. But, uh, you know, that was the one that got away. So that brings us to the end of uh, this episode, Series 1, Episode 3 of 90 Beats. Um, You've heard how I really got started uh, in getting involved in being behind the decks, really, at some events that were established. But certainly I kind of started to um, get a feel for running events and and wanting to really take, take a big part in it. And started to do that more and more, including doing some of my own nights that were at smaller venues, admittedly, um, but, you know, very enjoyable. Um, and really learning how I wanted to run nights, uh, as well as promote them and everything. Uh, I'll talk in another episode about some of the specifics of some of the nights I run, but for now I hope it's given you a flavour. Um, 
and you heard about some of my other adventures such as going into radio briefly so um, thanks for listening uh, you can get in touch at anchor.fm forward slash 90 beats and the playlist that accompanies this episode is available at tinyurl.com forward slash 90 beats s1e3 90 beats series 1 episode 3 uh, enjoy and uh, look forward to speaking to you on the next episode take it easy <laughs>